Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. Now, Titus, as I've mentioned before, is really a book about the church, how the church is meant to operate and function. And so far, we have considered the mission of the church. Uh, We have considered the government of the church, that the church is not meant to be independent, but connected uh, to its broader manifestations. And now we are going to consider and learn a little bit about the authority of the church. Now, last week, we focused upon verses 5 through 9, uh, but today we're going to focus our attention specifically on verses 9 through 16, but for the sake of context, uh, we'll be reading beginning in verse 5. And as always, at the conclusion of this reading of God's Word, we will confess together as the people of God that the Word of the Lord is indeed the inspired and infallible Word of our God. So please pay careful attention, for this is God's word given to us this morning. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we live in a, a culture and a society that uh, teaches us, catechizes us even, to question every external authority around us and to uh, treat our own internal subjective feelings and, and opinions as ultimate. And this attitude is present not only in society at large, but is even present within the church. Uh, there are many within the church who treat the official teaching and discipline of the church of Jesus Christ as mere pious advice. And committing oneself to a local manifestation of the body of Christ are, is really just shackles that restrains our freedom or constrains our freedom. And so Christians are just as much a product of the spirit of our age as the most ardent atheist out there. 
Now, of course, we all could probably give anecdotal stories of instances that we have experienced in the church where the church has lacked uh, or has failed to exercise their God-given authority in times in which they have overreached the authority that God has given them. However, what we see here in this passage is that Paul presents a wonderfully balanced understanding of the authority of the church. Authority that steers clear of both anarchy and tyranny. Now, you'll recall that Paul says in verse 5 to Titus, who, who, who is himself a minister, he tells Titus that he is to appoint elders in these various cities on the island of Crete who have unorganized church plants. And then Paul proceeds to give a list of qualifications that he is to use in the appointing of these elders. And Paul tells Titus that elders, ministers, are to be men of character and competency. And his emphasis is on character. And last week we considered briefly some of these character qualities that Paul alludes to. However, Paul also says that elders are to be men of, of, of competence. And competence in one specific area. Uh, they are to be competent in the word of God. And so what we see here in this passage is that Christ, who is indeed the king and head of the church, Christ exercises his authority in the church through his word as it is administered uh, by ordained officers. So Christ exercises his authority in the church through his word as it is administered through ordained officers. This morning then we're going to uh, consider two points in particular uh, first, we're going to, going to consider the authority of the church defined and then the authority of the church applied. So look with me at verse 9 of Titus chapter 1. Paul here defines the authority of the church for us in a very uh, concise and helpful way. He says, he, that is to say, an elder or a potential elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now notice what Paul is saying here. He's saying that elders are called to hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught. Now what is Paul not saying? Paul is not saying that elders are to only have a sincere love for the scriptures and hold fast to their ever-evolving private interpretations of those same scriptures. No, Paul is saying that elders are to hold fast, yes, to the trustworthy word, but also to the trustworthy word as taught. And so what this would have looked like in the original context is that these elders are, yes, to have a sincere love, devotion, and commitment to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the apostolic message, and whatever letters and Gospels, which would have been circulating at this time. But they also are to commit themselves to the way in which these scriptures have been understood according to the apostolic hermeneutic. So they are to uh, hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught. Novelty and ingenuity are not commendable characteristics for an elder according to the Apostle Paul here. Now Paul is getting at something uh, deeper than mere knowledge or competency. Paul is getting at the virtue of commitment, submission, and devotion. 
In Paul's mind, if there's a man who ha- who's articulate, a man who has a, a pretty deep knowledge of the Scriptures, but is not willing to submit himself or commit himself to the trustworthy word as taught, then he is uh, not nearly as qualified as another man who isn't nearly as articulate or doesn't have as much knowledge, but has this virtue of submission and, and commitment to the trustworthy word as taught by that apostolic hermeneutic. And so if we were to translate this verse for our own day and age, what Paul's essentially saying is that an elder is to hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught or confessed and summarized by the creeds and reformed confessions of the historic church. Which means that elders are not only to uh, uphold scripture, but they also are to uphold the way in which scripture has been taught through the channels of church history, which is expressed in the creeds and confessions of our church. And now in our churches, in URC churches, all officers, ministers, elders, and deacons, when they're ordained, they are called to sign a form of subscription. And this form of subscription has been utilized in Reformed churches for 400 years, ever since the Synod of Dort in 1618-19. And in signing this form of subscription, Officers within the church are indicating that they are holding fast to the trustworthy word as taught in our Reformed confessions. Now Paul, you'll see here in verse 9, continues and he gives us the purpose for holding fast to this trustworthy word. Notice that the reason why elders and ministers are called to hold fast to this trustworthy word is so that they may teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Now, in our churches, in URCNA churches, we make a distinction between elders and ministers. And this distinction comes from what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. So in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Let elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So Paul here says that there are elders who are primarily given a task to rule within the church, and then there are elders or ministers who are called primarily to preach and teach. And so the distinction between elders and ministers is not a distinction in authority. There's no hierarchy between elders and ministers. Rather, it is a distinction in function. There are those elders who are called to rule, and then there are elders or ministers who are called primarily to preach and to teach. And so this qualification that we read about in Titus 1 verse 9, that elders are called to hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught, so that they may be able to give instruction, sound doctrine, rebuke those who contradict it. This qualification applies to both elders and ministers according to their own distinct functions as given in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. And so what does it look like for an elder to be faithful to this qualification of what Paul gives us in Titus 1, verse 9? What does it look like for them to give instruction, sound doctrine, rebuke those who contradict it? Well, it means that they have been given the task of overseeing the ministry of the Word and the sacraments, of assisting the minister in the the catechetical instruction of the youth, of engaging the private ministry of the Word through family visitation and ordinary conversation, and also disciplining the wayward. And then ministers have been given the official task of 
the public preaching and teaching of the Word of God, the administration of the sacraments, the catechetical instruction of, of the youth and the, and the congregation, and then assisting the elders in the discipline of the wayward within the congregation. And so what we see here in verse 9 is that elders and ministers are called to authoritatively administer the Word of God in preaching and discipline. So Christ exercises authority in the church through preaching and teaching and discipline. Now this authority that Paul speaks about in the church that's connected to this office of elder or minister is sometimes, has sometimes been referred to as the ministerial and declarative authority. So it's ministerial because elders and ministers are servants of the word of God. Notice how Paul began this epistle. He referred to himself as a servant, a slave of Christ. And thus all elders and ministers are servants, not only because they are called to serve the congregation, but also because they are servants of the word. They are stewards and not masters. They are ambassadors and not kings. And thus, this authority is ministerial. But this authority is also declarative, which means that elders and ministers only have the authority to declare the word. They do not have the authority to legislate new laws. This is why sometimes the broader church is referred to as the courts of the church. That indicates that the church is not a legislative body. It only has authority to declare what's explicitly written in the Word of God. And so when Paul here is talking about how elders are to teach and discipline, they're to teach and discipline only according to what has been explicitly revealed in the Word of God. That's what it means that this authority is ministerial and declarative. Now this is where the creeds and confession of the church are very helpful. Because the next question you may ask, well, what is the explicit teaching of the Word of God? We all can probably come up with proof texts for, for errant doctrine. So what, what is the explicit teaching of the Word of God? Well, the creeds and confessions of the church both summarize the explicit teaching of the Word of God and they help to delineate the extent of the church's authority. And we see this taught explicitly here in verse 9. Notice how Paul limits the teaching and discipline ministries of the elders in the church. He doesn't say that elders and ministers can teach and discipline according to their own private opinions. He says that they only are called to teach and discipline according to sound doctrine and in accordance with the trustworthy word as taught. Paul limits the teaching and preaching ministries within the church. Paul limits the elders' authority to discipline in accordance with the trustworthy word as taught. And so if there's something that's in our confessions or creeds, that's a good indication that that's an important doctrine. That's an important topic, and the church has the right to bind your conscience on that topic. But ordinarily, if it's not revealed in our creeds and confessions, then it is not an explicit teaching of the word of God, and the church doesn't have the right to bind your conscience. And so this is how creeds and confessions function in a very practical way within the church beyond just being uh, pedagogical tools. What about those things then that are not in our creeds and confessions? What about those things that are not explicitly revealed in the Word of God? If you reflect upon your own life, most of the things that you struggle with in life are things that are not clearly revealed in the Word of God. 
So how do we think about those issues? Well, those issues fall under the category of Christian liberty or Christian freedom. And we see Paul alluding to this category in in verse 15. In Titus 1 verse 15, Paul says, To the pure, all things are pure. Paul is saying that to the regenerate, justified Christian, we have the freedom to enjoy the good things of this life. To the pure, all things are pure. In fact, Paul says very much the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And so Paul is saying here that Christians have freedom when it comes to food and drink, family life and social life, cultural life and vocational life, to enjoy the good things of this earth, the good things of this life, and we have freedom to make wise decisions within these various spheres of life. And the church does not have the authority to bind consciences within these spheres, nor has Christ promised the church competency to speak within these various areas of life. One uh, pastor and professor I was reading this week makes a helpful distinction between commending and commanding. So let's say, for example, if you come to me with a question after the service, a question about how to view a certain cultural, political issue, how uh, educational options for your children, where your child should go to college, uh, whom you should marry beyond uh, marrying in the Lord, or any other uh, uh, question uh, according to this line, I can commend to you various courses of action that may be prudential or wise, but I cannot command you, I cannot bind your conscience to pursue one course of action with the weight of my office. All I can do is commend because these are issues that fall under the category of Christian freedom. However, if you come to me and say, Pastor, I'm struggling with whether or not I should prioritize worship on Sunday. In that instance, I'm not commending, I'm commanding. And I'm called by God to bind your conscience uh, in light of the fourth commandment that you are to prioritize worship on the Lord's Day because that is something that's clearly revealed in the Word of God and in the confessions of the historic church. So it's very important that ministers, pastors, elders uh, recognize this distinction between commending and commanding. All too often, uh, churches command where they should be commending, and when they do this, they're essentially doing what the false teachers here in Titus 1 were doing. Uh, In verse 15, we see that there were false teachers in these various church plants in Crete, and they were binding consciences with the commandments of people, with the commandments of men. And that's what happens when we command where we should be commending. Now, historically speaking, this is why uh, churches of the Reformation and, and even more broadly than that, all churches of historic Christian traditions, um, those churches had ministers who would wear uh, robes or preaching gowns. And the reason for that is the gown and the robe signified the office the office that Paul is speaking about here. And so when you see a pastor in a gown, that is a pastor in office. That is a pastor who's not commending but commanding, who's functioning as a mouthpiece of God in teaching and sound doctrine, rebuking those who contradict it. Well, notice here the transition. So in verse 9, Paul explains for us or defines for us the authority of the church. Christ exercises his authority through his word, as it is ministered by ordained officers within the church. But in verse 10, Paul uses this, this, this connecting word for. 
And he's signifying for us that there are real on-the-ground issues in verses 10 through 16 that make verse 9 relevant. That these newly appointed elders that Titus is going to ordain will have disciplinary issues to deal with right off the bat. And so in verses 10 through 16, we see the authority of the church applied, applied to those who err both in life and in doctrine. So in verses 10 through 11, Paul describes these false teachers who were exerting influence in various church, in various, uh, uh, church plants in the cities of Crete. Now, who were these false teachers that Paul alludes to? Well, they likely were Jewish Christians who were part of these unorganized churches. Paul describes them as being of the circumcision party. And we also see in verse 14 that they were connected to these Jewish myths. And Paul also describes these individuals as being insubordinate, unwilling to submit themselves to authority. The very opposite quality that Paul commends of elders in verse 9. They were insubordinate. And we see furthermore that these false teachers were having a negative influence and effect upon families within these churches. In verse 11, Paul says that they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, what were these Jewish Christians teaching? We don't know for sure, but in 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells uh, Timothy, who is ministering in Ephesus, uh, to be on guard against false teachers who are wrecking havoc in in the church in Ephesus. And he describes those uh, false teachers as also being Jewish Christians, and they were forbidding marriage and certain foods. They were promoting a certain aesthetic type of lifestyle. And thus, these Jewish Christians in Titus 1 may have been teaching the very same things. They may have been teaching that Christians were to forego marriage, um, steer clear of certain foods in accordance with the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament to uh, live an aesthetic lifestyle. Now, what does it mean then that they were upsetting whole families or literally ruining whole families? Well, these Christians, these teachers may have been encouraging married couples to pursue a monastic celibate lifestyle and thus breaking up marriages and families within these churches and thus ruining them. And notice what Paul says to Titus in tandem with these newly appointed elders. He says you must silence them. Now, if these individuals would have been just holding to these beliefs privately, then they would have been in need of the teaching ministry of the church. But that's not what these individuals were doing. They were seeking to proselytize and propagate these views in such a way that it was having a negative effect upon families within these unorganized unorganized churches. And thus, Paul tells them that in accordance with their office, they are to silence them. An exercise, that qualification that Paul stipulates in verse 9. Well, Paul also alludes here to another demographic in the churches of Crete that need discipline, that need rebuke. Uh, Paul also describes the Cretans in this passage. Paul quotes in verse 12 a philosopher of the 6th century B.C. And he says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Apparently, Cretans had a reputation for being especially immoral and godless. 
As a side note, notice that this point does not cause Paul and Titus to, to, to shy away from planting churches in Crete just because uh, this is an immoral or godless area. Uh, this shows us that uh, places of the country, places of the globe that are very immoral, very godless, very post-Christian, need churches. They need faithful Christians. Just as uh, the island of Crete needed faithful churches and Christians in the first century. And so Paul continues in verses 13 to 14. And he agrees with the statement of this ancient philosopher. And he says this, Testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So Paul is, is telling here, or, or telling Titus and, again, the other elders within these churches that they are to rebuke the Cretans for their immorality. Paul, Paul also here uh, stipulates for us the purpose of this correction. What's the purpose of this rebuke? It's that they may be sound or literally healthy in the faith. This shows us how radically different ecclesiastical di uh, discipline is from civil discipline. Civil discipline is punitive. It's retributive. It seeks to punish the wrongdoer. Church discipline or ecclesiastical discipline should never be punitive. It should never be retributive. It should never be vindictive, but rather it aims to be restorative, that the wayward may be sound or healthy in the faith. The image that we should have in mind when it comes to rebuking the, the wayward is Jesus is the great shepherd, the great overseer of our souls, leaving the 99 to pursue the one wandering sheep. That's the attitude the church is to have as they exercise this right to discipline the wayward. Well, the main call that this passage gives to us is the call to submit. And this call comes to all of us. It comes to you as lay members. It comes to me as a minister. It comes to the elders in our church. We all are called to submit. We're submit to the word. We're submit to um, officers within the church. Submit to the, the creeds and confessions of the historic church. We're called to submit. But we all know that submission is hard. The reason why scripture so often calls us to submit is because part of our sinful nature doesn't want to submit. It's, it's hard to submit when we don't feel like it. It's hard to submit when there are things that we don't fully agree with. But yet we are called by God's word to submit nonetheless. And so what motivates us to submit when we don't feel like it? What motivates us is remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. The only reason why we can be called members of the body of Christ, the only reason why we can even receive this call to submit within the body of Christ is because of the self-sacrificial love of Jesus through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And because of this work, we can be assured that we have the forgiveness of sins, that we have been declared righteous by his holy merits, and that we have a hope of one day existing in a consummated new creation. And so we submit. We submit to the infallible word of God as it's mediated through fallible, ordained officers within the church because Christ, who lived, died, and rose again, calls us to. So let us pray.